Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You people judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and he who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And so they were saying to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. He said, therefore, again to them, I go away and you shall seek me and shall die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Therefore, the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I said, therefore, to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And so they were saying to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, what, I, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Dear Father, we thank you for these uh, amazing words that you've provided. We, uh, uh, we pray that you would lead us to learn more about this and understand this, uh, Lord. Uh, at a greater depth, and pray that you would guide Tom to speak this uh, and to teach us the way uh, you'd have him to uh, teach it, Lord, and help our hearts to hear it and understand it the way you'd have us to understand it. In the name of Jesus, I pray. This is quite an amazing passage. I don't know about you, but I uh, sometimes find myself feeling sympathy <laughs> toward the religious officials who kept going toe-to-toe with Jesus uh, based on the things that he was saying and doing. They saw themselves as the guardian of the revealed truth, the Word of God through his holy prophets. They weren't supposed to take the kind of statements that Jesus was making lightly. In fact, if they had taken an uncritical kind of gullible approach to what this man was saying, they would have been guilty of gross negligence. Imagine if somebody walked in here this morning He came up here and bumped me from the podium and stood right here and he said to you, I am the light of the world. How would you react to that? Well, you'd need some evidence, right? A whole lot of it. Even if you'd seen that man on the news for weeks doing what looked like very impressive miracles, if he came up here and made a statement like that, you'd need more. 
Jesus had been going around saying jaw-dropping kinds of things. Things that required more compelling evidence than any court of law had ever seen. And that's exactly what Jesus kept laying before the religious authorities and the multitudes. An incomparable weight of evidence that demanded belief. Our passage this morning presents itself much like a trial in a courtroom. The word witness is used more times in this one passage than in any other passage of the New Testament except John 5. This isn't an official trial, neither was the one in John chapter 5, but it includes all the parts of a courtroom proceeding. A defendant, prosecutors, testimony, witnesses, and a verdict, actually two verdicts. There's a whole lot going on in this passage and all of it flows from the testimony that Jesus presents in verse 12. The declaration, it's a two-part declaration, I am the light of the world. He who follows Me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. The two parts to that testimony are first, Jesus' claim regarding Himself. I am the light of the world. The second part of that testimony is the outcome for those who follow that light and by implication for those who don't. And what's implied in this verse is spelled out explicitly later in the passage. What happens to those who don't follow the light? The connection between this passage and John's prologue is profound. I'm going to read just a few verses from the prologue in chapter 1. Just listen. And think about what you see going on in this passage. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or overcome it. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He, the light is a He, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's amazing how closely what we see in this passage tracks with what John said in the prologue about the light. Verse 12 is the second of seven I am statements by Jesus in John's Gospel, each of which tells us something different about His mission as the one who was sent down from the Father out of heaven into the world. Each of those seven aspects of Christ's earthly mission is an outworking of who He is. See, you and I can say to another person, Let me tell you about the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You should have been given a piece of paper. Hold somebody, hold up that handout. Okay, on one side of that are the seven, what I call the seven missional I am statements. And I'm going to just give you those right now. On the back side of that are some other I am's that we're going to talk about next week. And they're very, very, very important. But 
The seven, what I call the seven missional I am's that are tied to the mission of Jesus on earth are first, I am the bread of life. Then I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. What did Jesus mean when He said, I am the light of the world? Earlier, He had told Nicodemus, chapter 3, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He doesn't have the sight to see the kingdom of God. So is Jesus saying here that He's the one who gives that spiritual sight? Well, that, I think that's clearly what He's saying in the second half of verse 12 when He talks about those who follow the light. He says, those who follow the light will not walk in the darkness. They will have the light of life. They will have in themselves the light that comes from the giver of life, Jesus. But I believe the declaration in the first part of that verse, I am the light of the world, is more all-encompassing even than that promise. See, I don't think he's saying, I am the one who gives spiritual sight. I think he's saying, I'm the light that spiritual sight sees. Even if a blind man bumps into a lamppost and thinks it's a really smooth tree, the light emitted by that lamp is still light. It's still light. No matter how it's responded to, no matter whether it's seen or not seen. I think John 9 is very important for understanding Jesus' declaration here. In John 9, 5, Jesus says, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I believe that what he's getting at is that during his time on earth, Jesus was the preeminent revelation of God to man. Regardless of how anyone responded to him, he was the clearest, fullest, most perfect, and most personal expression of God's being and of God's character that mankind has ever beheld. Men have been beholding God in every age through His written Word. I shouldn't say through. In His written Word by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. But Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-3 through tells us that when Jesus came into the world, that revelation of God took on a whole new level. Listen to Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. God, after He spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last, in these last days has spoken to us in a Son whom He appointed heir of all things through whom also He made the world. And He, Jesus, is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact, exact representation of His nature. That's a new kind of revelation. In the prologue to this Gospel, John said there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. 
in His incarnation as the perfect God-man who came down from heaven, Jesus shone divine light on every man by displaying God in a manner vastly more clear and complete and tangible and personal than any other revelation that God has provided of Himself. That's, I believe, what Jesus is saying about Himself. I am the light of the world. I mentioned there are two parts to Jesus' testimony here in verse 12. The first is that declaration. And the second is His testimony about men. What happens to those who follow Him and what happens to those who don't? He's going to come back to that second part of the testimony and that will be the theme of much of this passage. But first, there's a little aside in this, in this passage where Jesus begins dealing with an accusation from the Pharisees, an accusation related to the witnesses in support of His testimony. In verse 13, the Jews accuse Him of bearing false witness. They say, you are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. The law that God gave to Israel through Moses included an important protection against false witness in a courtroom. It declared that a defendant in a case, particularly a case involving capital punishment, could not be put to death based on the testimony of only one person. It had to be at least two. But that requirement was designed to protect the defendant against an unsubstantiated accusation. It did not apply to the defendant's right to speak for himself, to testify on his own behalf. Even if there was no other witness to corroborate the defendant's position, his case for himself, he still got to speak for himself. But of course, <laughs> if, if the prosecutor had a line of witnesses, multiple witnesses, and the defendant was the only voice speaking for himself, then his case was pretty flimsy. Couldn't really be expected to be believed. Back in chapter 5, Jesus said, if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. For I know where I came from. Excuse me. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know the testimony which he bears of me is true. Now you'll notice in that statement in chapter 5, Jesus is agreeing with these guys with what they're saying in chapter 8. He's agreeing that if he were, in fact, the only one bearing witness for himself, nobody should believe his claims. But here, just as in John 5, he makes it very clear that that's not what's going on. He has another witness. The greatest witness that any courtroom has ever seen. But he doesn't back off one bit from asserting that his own witness is absolutely true. In verse 14 of chapter 8, he says, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I am from or where I am going. He ties the strength of his own witness to where he came from and where he's going. Now, I don't think I'd use that particular argument if I was on trial, right? You know, there are a whole lot of Tom Wrights out there. 
Picture me standing in the courtroom and saying, yeah, but I'm the Tom Wright from Richardson. And when we're done here, I'm going back to Richardson. So what do you have to say to that? I don't think that would carry a whole lot of weight. But see, for Jesus, that's spot on. As we've already seen over and over in this Gospel, the place of Jesus' origin is central to His identity and to His mission. It's inseparable from His identity and His mission. In the very first verse of this Gospel, what did John say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then to make sure we got the middle of that clear, he says, He was in the beginning with God. Jesus' identity as the one true Creator God demands that He already existed in the beginning before anything else existed. And His identity as the second person of the Trinity demands that He was with God in the beginning. That's exactly what he's asserting. John 8.14, he says, My witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. He's saying the same thing about himself that John the Apostle said about him in the prologue. He's saying my witness is true because of where I'm from. And he's saying in effect to these men, if you knew where I was from, you'd know who I am. And we wouldn't be having this conversation then he turns the tables on the Pharisees. He says, but you, you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. And at this point, he interrupts his own, his own statement about the two witnesses. He hasn't actually identified the second one yet. He begins talking not about his defense against the judgment of the Pharisees, but about a different judgment about His and His Father's judgment against the Pharisees. Now they're on trial. He accuses the Pharisees of judging according to the flesh, and then He says, I am not judging anyone. And the verb tense is important there. I am not judging anyone right now. But I will. And so in verse 16, He says, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and He who sent me. The Pharisees saw themselves as God's appointed judges of this man claiming to be something special. But they had it completely backwards. The time is coming when they will stand before Him as their judge. And when they do, it will be His witness against them together with His Father's witness against them that will condemn, condemn them if they die without coming to faith in Him. That's true of every human being. Jesus was setting the stage in verse 16 for what He was about to say to these men in the last half of this passage regarding those who do not follow the light. But he comes back again in verses 17 to 20 to their challenge about the witnesses for the defense. They've said, you're the only man testifying. You're the only one testifying for yourself, so we don't need to believe you. 
But he goes on in verse 18, he identifies the other witness. He says, I am he who bears witness of myself and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Their reply is both sad and amusing. Okay, so where's your father? If it hadn't been for the fact that Jesus had already said this stuff before in John 5, standing spitting distance from where he was standing in this passage right here, and talking to people from the same group of religious leaders that he had spoken to before, if that was not all true, then it might be it might kind of make sense why they ask this question. Okay, where's your father? Produce the other witness. Bring your dad in here so he too can tell us that you're the light of the world. All of our moms told us that we were when we were kids. Should be very convincing. A little later in this passage, John says these Jews did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. It amazes me in this Gospel how many times the Jews know something and don't know it at the same time. How many times they see and don't see. Hear and don't hear at the same time. Jesus had already been crystal clear about what Father He was talking about. In fact, there's every indication that Joseph had passed away. He's not mentioned in the, in the adult phase of, uh, of Jesus' earthly life in the Gospels. He's talking about His Father in heaven, not His dad on earth. Here He answers them in verse nine, 19, and He says, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father. The radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. So, <laughs> who's on trial now? The, the table is completely turned around. The one who declared in chapter 5 that his Father had given all judgment into his hand is about to give these men a little preview of the judgment that's coming. And that preview should have brought them to their knees in fear and trembling. But it didn't. In verse 20, John takes the readers aside for a moment to make sure we get the context here. He says, he reminds us that these things were being, Jesus was teaching these things in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. He was in the treasury of the temple. It was the, the women's courtyard is where most people were allowed to come. So they're probably a big crowd. It says, no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. You'll notice it doesn't say no one seized him because they didn't try. They'd been trying for a year to get their hands on him. One of the most repeated statements in this Gospel is they tried to seize him and he passed through their midst or you know, no one touched him. That's not incidental. That's because his hour had not yet come. John is going to make it clear later, I mean, Jesus is going to make it clear later in this gospel that nobody gets to take his life from him. He has to lay it down himself. So until the, until his hour had come, nobody was going to kill him. Wasn't going to happen. Alright. We've talked about the testimony in verse 12 that brought on this impromptu court session. We've talked about the two witnesses that Jesus presents in support of his testimony, himself and his father, you know, just two members of the Trinity. 
Now let's look at the verdict. There are two very different responses in this passage by the people who were listening to Jesus' words. The positive response gets very little attention. The very last verse of the passage, verse 30, says, As He spoke these things, many came to believe in Him. That's it. Those are the ones who followed the light. And because they followed the light, they received the light into themselves. They had the light of life. By the way, I'm pretty sure this was real belief, not some sort of superficial thing. And you know why? Because there wasn't a miracle here. And in the Gospel of John, when people come to faith based on the Word spoken by Jesus, that's the real deal. Over and over and over. That's just one verse. The positive verdict, that's one verse in this passage. The whole rest of the passage is about the negative verdict and the outcome of that verdict. In verses 21-24, to 24, Jesus drops the hammer on those who turn away from the light. He says, I go away and you will seek Me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Friends, you don't want Jesus to say those words to you. you got to love their response. It says, therefore, the Jews were saying, surely He will not kill Himself, will He? Since He says, where I am going, you cannot come. I don't think that would have been my first logical you know, extension of what Jesus said here. Here's my two cents on that. I think they were so bent on killing Jesus themselves that when He said He was going away and they couldn't come where He was going, they were really, really worried that He was going to rob them of the privilege of taking His life. That's some serious malice. Of course, the problem with talking about Jesus behind His back, as we've seen over and over in this Gospel, is that He always hears every word. So, He clarified for them where He was going. And then He clarified for them where they were going. He said, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. Three times He says you shall die in your sins. You know what that means? That means you shall die with the crimson stain of your sin and the eternal debt of your sin still on you. Jesus was going back where He came from, above. He was going back to His eternal dwelling place in the company and in the glory of His Father. But they, these men who thought of themselves as the judges of Jesus were going to die in their sins forever barred from access to the kingdom and the dwelling place of the living God. They could not go where Jesus was going. Ever. They would die with the terrible weight of their sins on their own shoulders unless, unless, If the God of the universe had just declared that judgment against you, which, by the way, He has against every human being, wouldn't you want to know what came after the word unless? 
that judgment rests on all of mankind since Adam. We all walk around with the curse of our sin coursing through our veins. And it's only the grace of God that saves us. He said to them, unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. They no doubt took Him to mean unless you believe that I am who I say I am. And that's fine. That wording could mean that. And if you really, if they were really listening to who He said He was, that would, that would be just perfect. But as we'll see next week, I believe when He says unless you believe that I am, He's saying a whole lot more than just that. In verse 25, they say, okay, so, okay, okay, you said unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. So who are you? Who do you say that you are? Jesus had already given them the answer to that question in a whole bunch of different ways. So He didn't bother to answer it again. Instead, He just said, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? You know what? If if Jesus is standing before a human being and that human being isn't paying attention to what He's saying, there's something seriously wrong going on. And if you and I are not paying attention to what this Bible reveals about what Jesus declared about Himself while He was here, if we're not paying attention, if we don't even get who He says He was, do you realize most of the world does not believe, many professing Christians do not believe that Jesus clearly said He's God? They're not paying attention. He speaks one more time of the judgment that's coming to His accusers. Verse 26 gives me chills. He says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. The implication is that one day He will speak every word of that judgment against every person who has persisted in turning away from the light. That day is coming. But for now, in this context, He speaks only that which He was sent to speak the first time He came. He says, He who sent Me is true and the things which I heard from Him, these I speak to the world. And then He makes a statement as profound as any that you'll find in the Gospels. He says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. I believe there's a double meaning in the words, when you lift up the Son of Man. On one side, He means the same thing that He meant when He used that wording in His conversation with Nicodemus. He's saying, when you lift up the Son of Man nailed to a cross, the truth concerning Me will be on full display for all to see that I am and I perfectly fulfill My Father's will. That I finish the task He sent Me to do. But there's another meaning here, and I'm quite confident that there's a double meaning here. 
in the great prophecy of the suffering servant of God in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, written 750 years roughly, about 700 years before Jesus came. That prophecy begins with these words, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And after that statement, that passage prophesies the suffering, the humiliation, the substitutionary death, the burial, the resurrection, and the marvelous exaltation of that servant of God who is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The day is coming when Jesus will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted and every knee will bow down to Him and every tongue will confess both in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Everyone will know that Jesus is I am Yahweh, God of very God, the Savior of the world, and they will know there is no other. For many, it will be way too late. Jesus came from heaven to earth the first time to be lifted up on a cross as the one and only sufficient payment to God for the terrible, infinite debt of your sin and mine. He came not to judge, but to save. But when He comes again, He will come in glory as the judge of the whole earth. How you respond now to the first lifting up of Jesus will determine how you end up when He is lifted up again. Right now, whoever you are in this room or perhaps listening to this at some point, question is, will you follow the light or will you turn away from the light? Your eternal destiny depends on your answer. I want you to imagine for a moment that you and a close friend of yours are doing some spelunking. You know what spelunking is? Exploring caves. You're in a huge, complex cave. You get very deep into that cave and then at one point you realize it's been too long since you, you left your last path marker and you can't even find it. And so you're looking all over the cave trying to figure out how to get out. And the longer you look, the more hopeless things become. Pretty soon, your headlamp and your flashlight and your cell phone batteries are dead on all of them. And it's pitch dark. You can't even see the nose in front of your face. You realize that you're, you're slowly dying of thirst and starvation and you don't have a clue how to get out of that darkness. And then you see a glimmer of light way off in the distance. What do you do? Well, unless you're an idiot, you go toward the light. Right? Well, what if your friend says, there's no light there. You're imagining things. And and he insists that he knows a way out of that cave, and he's been insisting that for the last two days, but... It's the other direction. And, and so, <laughs> you got this terrible conundrum, but the decision's still pretty clear, right? You say, look, you, you use all of your powers of persuasion to try to convince your friend to go with you toward the light, because you see it. You know it's a light. 
But he is intransigent. He's convinced that there's no light there. And pretty soon, you hear his footsteps moving away from you in the direction that he said he could get out of the cave. You realize the only way I'm ever going to see my friend again is if I go toward the light and make make my way into the light and get help and then maybe I can come back and rescue him. In that, in that little scenario between you and your friend and the light, what never changed? What was absolutely certain the whole time? The light. One of you saw it, one of you didn't. One of you followed it, one of you didn't. But the light was always the light. Jesus is the light that enlightens every man. He is the true light who displays God to mankind more perfectly, more completely, more personally than man will see anywhere else. But that doesn't mean that men will follow the light. Many people, most people, who are exposed to that marvelous light say, that's not the light. And they cling to the familiar darkness that they know so well. When I was a teenager, still an unbeliever, I've told you all before that I I was consumed by anxiety and deep depression. There was a song by Jesse Colin Young. Some of you old folks know the Youngbloods. The song that put the darkness in my heart to words musically I still like the song, but the words make me cry for the lost and fall down in grateful tears before my Savior. The title of the song is Darkness, Darkness. Here's the first verse. Darkness, darkness, be my pillow. Take my hand and let me sleep. In the coolness of your shadow, in the silence of your deep, Darkness, darkness has me yearning for things that cannot be. Keep my mind from constant turning toward the things I cannot see. Toward the things I cannot see. I knew all too well the meaning of those words. And then... God plucked me like a brand out of the fire from that passage in Jeremiah in Zechariah 3. God plucked me out of that pitch black darkness and He brought me into the marvelous, astonishing light of Jesus Christ. If He hasn't done that in your life, I pray today will be the day of your salvation. You have to believe in Him. You have to follow the light. I'm going to read you one more verse from a different song and then I'll be done. A song from a heart uh, that was once lost in the darkness, but God replaced it with a new heart. These are just the feeble words of a redeemed sinner. But they were prompted by the beautiful invitation of Jesus that's recorded on the last page of every Bible in Revelation 22. All you thirsting from afar, come to the morning star. The Spirit and the Bride 
call out to You. Forsake Your pride and come in faith to Him alone. He'll name You as His own. Be His forevermore. One last word to those here who have already come to that bright and morning star. In Matthew 5, Jesus said that someone else is the light of the world. Did you know that? He said someone else is the light of the world. And He's talking about us. Matthew 5.14 You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it, put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in that house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. While you and I remain here on earth, we have a task. When Jesus was here on earth, He was the light of the world. The preeminent, personal, perfect revelation of God. He's not physically here anymore, but you know what? He's still here. He's still seeking and saving the lost. He's still shining the light of revelation of God in this lost and dark world. And He's doing it through us. Through His church. We're not the source of the light. We're the bearers of the light. We're the lampstand. That's what Revelation talks about. We're the lampstand. We are the bearer of the light of Jesus Christ to this dark, dead, desperately needy world. So beloved, while we still have time, let's show off the light. God of all true light, we thank You. We praise You for sending Your own Son into this terrible darkness to rescue the wretched, darkness-loving likes of us. You saved us. You made us Your own treasured possession. All of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ when we deserve to be separated from You forever. That's all we deserved. You saved us so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of that pitch black darkness into His astonishing light. Make us bold in the proclamation of the light of life. May His light shine brightly through our words and our works for all the days that remain to us on this, on this earth. We ask this in His, His amazing name.